Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is the brilliant actor... Brian Cox. Brian was born in Dundee in 1946. At the age of 14, he got a job running errands at the Dundee Red. And in theatre, he found a second home and his vocation. After sharing a stage with some of the greats and winning several awards, America came calling. His first big film role was Hannibal Lecter. But his portrayal of billionaire media mogul Logan Roy in succession, brought a whole new level of fame and recognition, and news that the fourth season will also be the last has hit some fans very hard. This conversation was recorded on the 31st of March, when I was in Zimbabwe and Brian was in London. Just to warn you, there will be a bit of bad language. Let's get on with it. Brian Cox, it's a joy to be able to do this snowcast with you. I want to start with your dad. He was a beloved grocer who saw himself as a community service. He died when you were only eight. What on earth was the effect on you? I sort of numbing, really. You don't expect to lose your dad, and especially I didn't even know about my father's illness, the extent of it. I mean, of course, I was an eight-year-old, so they didn't tell me anything. I now know that he died actually within three weeks of his diagnosis. You know, he was diagnosed, he went to the hospital, and he never came out. And um, it's kind of weird, really. I, you know, everybody looks at my childhood and said, oh, it must have been how horrible it was and everything like that. And I, it would be wrong of me to say it was horrible. It was a very extraordinary time, given the fact that my mother was severely mentally ill and, and, and tried to kill herself. Um, you know, and eventually she had to have electric shock treatment, and that was not great for her. 
because she couldn't remember anything. And uh, I, I don't know, it was something, I think some kind of thing kicked in, and I think it was a survival thing that just said, you know, Cox, you're going to survive this. It's okay. You'll be okay. I mean, of course, I dearly miss my dad, but I never felt I was abandoned. I had these wonderful sisters. Um, sadly, my eldest ones just passed away, and she was very much my mother's surrogate when I was growing up. And uh, she just looked out for me. She just saw that I was going to be all right, you know. Her and her husband lived in two rooms with a bathroom on the stair, which was shared with three other families, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, she also had two, two children. Incredible. Yeah, incredible. It was incredible when I think about it. But one just didn't see it at the time. And when you write it all out, you go, oh, well, this... This looks like some kind of tragic tale, but of course it was in one sense, but in another sense, I don't know what happened. It, something went into gear, and it was a survival mechanism. I just thought, I'm not going to be swamped by this, even at that age. I thought, because I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I was blessed in that way, so I just thought, no, I'm going to carry on. <laughs> the extraordinary thing is that here was this wonderful man running the grocery, a community service, as I mentioned, and yet when he died, he only had £10 left. Yeah. Well, the thing was, he made quite a bit of money during the war because he, he had a grocer's shop, so he was what was known as a received occupation because he was supplying, you know, he was selling stuff. Well, of course, as a result, he did make some money. In fact, he made, I think, something like £28,000, which was a hell of a lot of money in, in those days. And it seemed to have evaporated. My mother was always on to him, and he had these business associates who he sort of banked and stupidly did so. And we spent years trying to get this one property that was owed to us. And I mean, there was a lot of crooked lawyer stuff and all of that going on. And, um, and it was, a, again, a double strain from my mum, who was already frail. And I think it was the, you know, the things that really made it hard. When she got his bank book and she discovered he only had £10 in the bank, I mean, I think that must have devastated her. You know, because also, as far as she was concerned, it was the fulfillment of his life because he, he really was very socialist-minded. He really, I mean, he would go out at 10 o'clock at night and he would decorate somebody's apartment, an old couple's apartment, and then come back. I mean, he was that kind of man, and he believed in it. He really believed in these things. And unfortunately, he didn't really think about his health. I mean, he would have been fine if he'd lived. I think he would have turned things around, but... He died, and then the proverbial hit the fan, really. Ryan, talk to me about your first performing times as a child. My first performance was at New Year in Hugmanay, which is a big festivity, as you, as you know, in Scotland. You know, we really welcome the New Year in with what they call first footing, where everybody goes round with a piece of coal or even a wee dram of whiskey, and you wish the house good luck for the year. And uh, my dad used to organise these little parties at New Year's Eve time. And I can remember them vividly up until the last one was the year he died, and I can remember them so much. And what would happen is everybody would do what they called a turn, recite a poem or sing. Usually they sang. And my sister had a great singing voice. She could sing incredibly well. And I would be summoned at like one o'clock in the morning. We had two bedrooms and uh, a kitchen alcove, and my brother and myself slept in the kitchen alcove, and my three sisters slept in one bedroom and my mum and dad in the other one. So there was seven of us all together in, uh, in that house. And uh, 
you know, I would be put into bed in my mum's bedrooms and so because the guests would be there in the kitchen. And then I would be taken out about one o'clock in the morning and I would sing. And uh, I had a little coal bunker, which was in the window recess where we kept the coal. And that was, I hadn't thought about it until I wrote the book, but that was probably my first stage. And then I stood on the, there and then I would sing and I would do Al Jolson impersonations. And the thing I remembered vividly was the effect on the room. There is a strange effect. I suppose that this is the reason that we have churches as well as anything else. But there was a harmony came into the room. There's this incredible closeness, and you get this in the theater. Then when people go to the theater, there's this sense of when you're part of an audience, something else comes into play. But I remember thinking, this is something I want to be part of. I want to be part of a, an experience that causes this kind of reaction. And, of course, I was a natural show-off or a limelighter, as they used to call me at school, you know, Cox. You're always wanting to be in the limelight, you know. You know. I mean, I was an odd board. I mean, my education was a total bloody disaster, you know. I mean, I failed my 11 plus because I was always going errands for the headmaster and going down to Largs, the... Uh... Bran, you're not alone. I failed mine too. <laughs> well, there you are. <laughs> yeah, there you are. My formative education was non-existent, really. I mean, there were great teachers who were very kind. They knew that I was an odd, you know, I was a fish out of water. And there was a guy called George Hackett, who was my uh, registrar teacher, and a guy called Bill Dewar, who was the person who actually took me to the theater for the first time. They had a rep club, and I went to Dundee Rep, which was my local rep, and I saw my first live actors. And I saw them only literally two months before I worked with them, which was bizarre, because I'd never seen live actors. I'd not had that experience. And uh, you may remember an actor, because <laughs> we're of a similar age, uh, you remember an actor called Nickel Williamson. Well, Nickel Williamson, he started in Dundee, and I remember watching this then very young man do the most extraordinary things, and I thought, wow, this is incredible, this guy, what he's doing. That was the thing. Your love of films growing up is extremely important to your life, but it radically changed at a cellular level after seeing a performance by Albert Finney, in yeah. the 1960 film, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. Tell us about that. Well, that was it. You know, I mean, I loved the movies, and I thought I would like to be a movie. I, I'd like to be in films. Uh, we, we called them films. I want to be in films. <laughs> and uh, it was the 60s, and I remember walking up the plaza. There was 21 cinemas in my hometown when I was a kid. 21, which is uh, ridiculous saw this sign for this film called Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. And I thought, oh, I'll go in. And I had a way of being able to get into that cinema without paying. So I, I got myself into it, and it transformed me. I just thought, wow, this guy looks like me, you know, which was arrogant, vainglorious on my part. He had this attitude, and then he had this voice, and he had that accent that he locked, talked like that, and, uh, well, you know, I mean, I just, I, I just, I loved his chutzpah. And then I realized that clearly it would be possible to make films. I mean, the, and this was before Z Cars or any of those great television shows that happened in the late 60s. But I was thinking, this guy is it. And uh, I just completely got hooked on Albert Finney, and then he did Tom Jones, and, you know, eventually we became friends, you know, great friends, really. I, I, I loved Albert. He was, a, he was an extraordinary man. I'm very intrigued by something which struck me quite strongly when I read that you believe that proper taxation allowed you to go to a prestigious drama school. 
Absolutely. It's interesting because the 60s was the time of social mobility. When I went to London, I was 17. I mean, I didn't know anything. I didn't know shit from Shinola, really. <laughs> and uh, I arrived in London, and uh, everybody was so welcoming and kind. And I felt at home, and I felt free. And also, I had been paid for by the Scottish Education Authority. I had a huge grant. Now, that's unheard of today. And I think we're certainly in a few difficulties at the moment, but I think the 60s wasn't exactly... There wasn't a lot of money around in those days, but they did it. They made it happen, you know, and uh, I was the beneficiary of that. You know, that's why in Scotland we still maintain free uh, university education for Scots, you know, and, and that was what happened to me. I was treated really well for a kid that had no qualifications whatsoever, and I really had none. I mean, I left school just on my 15th birthday and went into the theatre straight away, but it was great. It was an amazing period. Well, it's an uplifting story, and it's incredibly important that people of your stature and your position in the trade, if you like, are public about what it was that enabled them to be who they are. I, I think that's a, a fantastically good point. People don't nearly make that enough, you know. How significant was that opportunity? Very nice to have or life-changing? Oh, it was life-changing. Was, no, it was life-changing because, you know, what actually happened was that I worked in the theatre for a good two and a half years, and I worked there, and it was a wonderful time, and just a wonderful time for me. And as I say, people were so amazingly generous, and eventually there was a Canadian director who came called Bill Davis, who was more known for the smoking man in the X-Files, Lovely guy, and still going, actually. He's still teaching. He, he's part of a Canadian theatre family called the Davises, and he's based in Vancouver. Anyway, Bill was running the theatre, and he said to me one day, Brian, he said, would you be interested in coming to a voice class? And I had no idea what a voice class was. I thought, yeah, you know, I was up for anything. Yeah, sure, I'll come. Yeah, that's great, yeah. So this young woman arrived, um... She'd come from this school, Lambda, which was the school I finally went to, and she started this voice lesson. And it was, again, one of those life-changing experiences when you thought, oh, my God, it's all about the diaphragm and it's all about how you support yourself and don't trap it in the throat. I mean, just amazing. And she was astonishing. She was called Kristen Linklater, and she became really rather famous because, ironically, after I got into the drama school where she was and I went there because of her, she left. <laughs> she went to America, and so I was... Anyway, it was still a great time. So I thought, where this woman is, I want to go. And they were very encouraging. Again, they were very supportive, and I applied for my grant, and, and I got it, you know. Because, you know, partly because my mother was a widow, um, and nobody had... I don't think anybody very... I mean, there have been a couple of people who had gone to drama school from Dundee, but I think not many at all. Well, we've dealt with the early days, and I need to take you to the reason we all want to hear from you today, and that is the end of succession. You're not only fine, you seem to be over it. Oh, yeah, or upward and onward, you know. I mean, uh, I just don't believe in dwelling on things, you know. I mean, succession has been one of the, probably the best career experiences I've ever had, you know, bar none, you know, and I think that's what's been extraordinary, but I, I, can't, I can't knock it. It's, it's put me into a whole level of being that I... I mean, I'm now this 
freaking icon, you know. <laughs> I can hear the hear hears everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I find it really hard, you know, because I think, I mean, I've been doing this for 60 years, you know, and somebody once said to me, oh, Brian, it will be the long haul for you. Well, I never knew it was going to be this freaking long, I tell you that much, you know. So it's, it's kind of weird, you know, because everything is altered. I mean, I've just been on a tour, actually. That's why I'm oh, slightly punchy at the moment. I've just been in Sweden and Madrid, and they all went crazy for the show. They, they just, I mean, they're going absolutely nuts for it. I mean, it was like, it was like I was Jesus Christ or something. I thought there's a wonderful Stanley Baxter sketch where he's standing there beside his dying grandpa, and he's the grandpa saying, "One day, kid, this will all be yours. This will be yours. It'll be as far as the eye can see, and all those oil wells." And he goes on and on and on. And then Stanley's reply is. It's an awfully big job for one wee boy and his own grandpa. (laughs) And uh, I feel like that sometimes. It's been something which has been absolutely huge. Articles have been written about Logan Roy's psychology and the meaning behind the cardigans. (laughs) Was the attention ever just that tiny bit overwhelming? A tiny bit. It's completely overwhelming, you know. Oh, God, my old boots. I mean, really... uh, no, it's been really overwhelming. I mean, it's it's just, we've met over the years. You know, you did your wonderful turn in Coriolanus all those years ago. And I bobbed and weaved my whole career, you know, and I have loved it. It's been great. And now I can't go anywhere without people coming up with a device and asking me to tell them to fuck off. And, you know, John, of course, that turns out to be the easiest thing to say because you do want to say to the people who come up and tell you, please tell me to fuck off. Yes, please do. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when the last clapperboard clapped at the end of shooting, what were your emotions? Oh, no, nothing. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) I just felt that's the end. Let's go. Let's get on. You know, you've got to go on. You know, I... I lost the favorite, my most favorite person in, in my life, really, you know, which was my sister. She was 92, my sister Betty, who I absolutely adored. And she made me laugh. And she was a woman that, you know, after her husband died, she became very liberated in terms of herself, you know. And she was amazing. She was just amazing and always kind and caring. And, and she had this... I know she had this space where she could see what was going on, you know, she was great. And I lost her on February the 7th, and, you know, I'd seen her a few weeks before because she was in a care home, and and we had a very joyous, sad day, and as her last words to us were, I'm going to miss you when I've gone, (laughs) she said. And uh, I said, oh, where are you going, babe? She said, well, either up there or down there, and she said, it doesn't really matter. And, you know, and this is a woman who'd been a kind of strong Catholic all her life. She was going in and out of sleep. And then she lived for another four weeks and, and, and just slowly passed away. But what that left me is I didn't... Her ending, in the end, was fine because she had made her life and she had come to it and she was prepared and she was going. She was just going. And that was the end. And it just made me think. And I thought... You know, that's somebody who's really important. I'm not going to be worried about a fucking TV series coming to an end, you know. (laughs) But it's incredible because other cast members have spoken of tears, of sadness at the conclusion of succession. No, I'm John, I'm sorry. I mean, look, the thing is, I will miss that cast. I love that cast. I love that crew. My God, we had a great crew. We had some of the best camera operators I've ever worked with on that show. No, I love 
loved all those people. Those people meant a lot to me. Of course they did, but I'm not going to... I just, you know, it comes to an end, that's fine. And Jesse had the courage to bring it to an end. If you actually think about it, it's four seasons. So you've got season one, Kendall, season two, Shiv, season three, Roman, and season four, it's the family. That's it. Jesse brilliantly observes the theatrical and dramatic unities. It's very difficult for him, it was very painful for him to find a path through this, to create this last series, but he did it, and I have, I've got nothing but respect. Now, actors... It, <laughs> oh, Brian. <laughs> Sorry. It takes a long time for us to become intelligent. But when we do, we do actually become intelligent. But sometimes we're so involved with our own vaingloriousness that we forget about certain things. You know, this is not true of every actor, but it's it's a problem of when you're constantly in that state of being exposed. But I think that I got cute on this years ago. I'm 70-odds, for Christ's sake. You know, I'm not a kid, so I don't have that effect. I mean, it's true. I mean, I thought it was a bit ridiculous that Sarah Snook didn't know that the show was over on the very last read-through we did. She didn't know that that was the end. You know, I mean, then she's Australian, and so maybe it's something to do with being Australian. <laughs> You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow. And we'll be right back after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Reading what everybody has said about succession, it's quite clear everybody knows that in a way, we're talking about somebody like Rupert Murdoch. And do you think it's because people understand that such people really do exist, that it's such a massive success? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's partly true. But, but, but I think it's also to do with the psychology of audiences. You know, I mean, <laughs> group love and group hate is... It's almost sometimes indivisible, <laughs> you know. People love each other as much as they can hate each other. And, and audiences love to hate. They love to see human beings being total pricks. You know, they love it. They get off on it. I don't know why. I mean, I can't understand it myself. I mean, everybody goes on about Logan. Oh, Logan, oh, Logan this and Logan that. And, he's, and I think he's one of the most misunderstood characters I've ever played. You know, I don't think he's... Any, I mean, I think he's got a temper. But all he's trying to do is find a successor for his awful business, you know, and he's trying to find them among his own children, and uh, they are 
found and constantly, consistently, severely wanting. You know, and it's very, it's a kind of push me pull you situation. You know, for poor old Logan. You know, there's this whole thing about how parents destroy children, and you know, some parents, of course, have had a very bad effect on children. But you know, there comes a point. When all bets are off, when you can't blame your parents anymore, you can't just say, oh, it was my dad and my mum's fault. You just go, you know, at the age of about 21 or 22, you've got to stand on your own two feet and say, this is it, this is me now, now I've got to deal with it. And I, and I think that that's what sadly what people don't get. And audiences, of course, don't get it at all. They, it's, it's really weird. I mean, I just think that, I think the human beings are so divinely stupid sometimes. So... End of succession, at least for the moment anyway, and there seems to be any sign that it's going to be revived. What is next? No, it's not going to... No, John, let me tell you now. John, it's not going on. This is the last of the series. It's the last of it, definitely the last. But you actors, writers, have done something a politician's incapable of recognising. When to stop? Yeah, that's it. We go on. We shift. Brilliant. Yeah, we shift. I'm going back to the theatre to see if I can still remember lines, you know, which I'm really nervous about. Well, I want to ask you then, what, what is next? Can you tell me about uh, Glenn Rothen? Have I mispronounced it? Glenn Rothen? No, that's right. You, you actually pronounced it correctly. Yeah. You've described it as a love letter to Scotland. Yeah, I, I think it is. It's written by my friend, uh, my old, old friend, David Ashton. And we did a series for many years together on the radio called McCleavy about an Edinburgh detective, which I loved. And he's such a beautiful writer, David. And he's really, you know, sort of deeply, deeply Celtic in his writing. And he's written this story about these two brothers who have not seen each other for many, many years because the younger brother, who was the really talented one, had fell out with the father and the mother told him to get the hell out. So he left and he went to Chicago and he became a music critic, actually specialized in writing about the blues and very successfully. But in the last few years, everything's slightly gone wrong for him. And the elder brother, which I am actually playing, he's the guy who's just a plotter. He ran the business, you know, and he's he never really enjoyed it, but it was it turned out to be one of the most successful distillers there there was of the small distilleries and Glen Rothen is a very successful uh, malt. But he's now got to a point where he's not well. I mean, he isn't well in the story. It doesn't reveal what it is in the until the end, but he decides it's time to move on. So he tries to re-embrace his younger brother, and the younger brother unwillingly comes back to Scotland. He's almost blackmailed by his daughter to bring him back, and his daughter brings him back, and then his past catches up with him. And, and it's it's all about finding roots and what roots do. Do roots bind you or do roots kind of liberate you? And my view is, and David's view, even though he's not lived the kind of life I've lived, is that roots are liberating, that they're not necessarily binding, you know, and that good things grow from roots. So um, that's really the essence of what the film's about. But I can't cast my leading actor. That's my bloody problem at the moment. Well, then you've got in the pipeline playing the composer Bach on stage. Yeah. How's your harpsichord? Horrible. <laughs> I'm a complete musical... F well, I'm not even a fraud. I'm just not... I'm just useless. You know, I mean, there's some point in the play where I have to, there are these three composers and I'm to say, yes, I like that bit that you did and I'm supposed to whistle what they've written. I don't know how the hell I'm going to be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really interesting play. I must tell you this, I sang Bach uh, as, as a child. I, I was a chorister in Winchester Cathedral. Oh, wow. And... Uh, I'm wondering what you can do with him in the theatre 
that we kids were unable to do singing his music in a cathedral. The play is really about Bach. It's not about so much about the music. I mean, music, of course, is there. It speaks for itself. But the play is really about Bach being sort of courted by Frederick the Great, who he really didn't like. But it was a very difficult... I mean, you can imagine he was a sort of Putin-like warmonger, Frederick the Great. So that's the interesting thing. I know that Trevor wants to have the end with the, the sound of the music of Bach being faded out and being dominated by marching steps, you know, of, of soldiers. And there were these three court composers who were like, you know, they were like patsies. And he wanted Bach to join him. And that's what the play's about. He has to avoid, because he has this new score, he has to avoid being as it were, taken over by Frederick the Great. And that's the debate in the play, you know. So it's it's a really interesting play in that point. So the music is incidental, you know. It's really about the artist imperative being threatened by these forces that are really quite awful, really. And I think that's what's so fascinating about the play. But I think what is so fascinating about you is that you span these extraordinary personalities. The capacity to play Bach, and on the other end, the great publisher. I mean, two utterly contrasting people. One regarded by many as a bit of a reptile, that is, the modern, and the other uh, effectively a saint. It, it is incredible to think of Murdoch and Bach coming out of the same soul, yours. <laughs> Yeah, but I, that's our job, John. That's what actors do. We, we don't judge our characters. We have to give our characters their place. What they do is not the actor's responsibility. What they do is usually a result of how they become. The whole thing that I have is you go to a birthing room of a hospital and you look down and you see all those babies. Now, it's going to be very hard to pick out which one is Adolf Hitler which one is Hannibal Lecter, you know, which one is Madame Curie. It's going to be really hard to pick them out because there they are in their essence and in their innocence and then things happen to them, things that make them who they are and what they become. And that's the thing that I love about my job. That's my journey, the journey of the soul, to go into who they are and find out who they are and how they become that. I mean, Logan is an extremely lonely deprived, cannot do relationships, impossible. But he's also a destroyed romantic. He's a deep cynic. And deep cynics are always to do with people who are very romantic. When that all goes, cynicism reigns. And I think that he had certain ideals when he was young and he, he decided, fuck it, I'm going in this direction. And he did it. And he did it, and he was successful. But he lost all sense of who he was in the process. And so he's become more and more etiolated in terms of his soul. And I think he's also misunderstood because at, at this time in his life, he's trying to pull a lot of it back. He's looking for a successor, and he's looking for the successor among his children. He's not gone outside of that. He's saying, I want one of these kids to take over. And that's what each story is about. And the kids are severely, severely wanting. And that's where the political aspect of the writing comes in because of the what the situation is that they are in, you know, the fact that they are in an area of entitlement, you know, and, it's, and it really is a condemnation of the rich. 
I did a documentary. Because I was playing this part, I felt I needed to do something else. So I did a documentary on money. And I, I did a thing called How the Other Half Live, which, where I talked to some very, very rich people and some very, very poor people. And the rich are getting more and more isolated because they're more and more not out of touch, but not wanting to be in touch with certain things, you know. And the poor are just left flotsam and jetsam. They're just knocked away to the side. I mean, I went to Miami, and in Miami there was these amazingly rich people, and there was also these, these ridiculous creatures that have grown up called influencers who have so much money and no, no sense whatsoever. And also, Miami is dedicated to money. It's dedicated to it. So they keep building buildings, which 50% of them are empty, particularly the ones on the shore. And there are new buildings. And they're getting rid of low-cost housing. And in the low-cost housing are immigrants, legal immigrants in those houses. There are a few illegals as well. That, that happens. But they're legal. They've all been given six weeks' notice to get out while these buildings are there, and they're, they're empty. They're not full. They'll never be full. And this is what I think is just so god-awful with our society now. I went back to my hometown, you know, and where I grew up at the time that the Queen passed away, and I was remembering the coronation, and we had a big coronation party in our backyard, and it was impeccable. Our backyard was impeccable. There was these little sinks that they had for washing, and there was a concrete air raid shelter in the middle of it, and just amazing. And, and everybody had the name on the door. No matter, it was a two-bedroom apartment, you had your name on the door. So now I went back to that place, and it's a wreck. There's nothing, it's, it's a mess. It's, I couldn't believe it, the backyard. It's just extraordinary, you know. I, I mean, just devastatingly ugly. And then going up the stairs and seeing all those families I knew and where they lived, there were no names, it's numbers. Flat one, flat two, flat three. So the depersonalization process that has gone on and has been encouraged, and it's no wonder that Dundee is the highest heroin addiction in virtually in Europe, you know. I mean, it's just... God awful, you know, and I, I, I really see, you know, how we've traveled over the last 60-odd years, and I just, I'm disgusted by it, you know. When I think the 60s was that time when everything was possible, everything could have happened, and we've got to such a state now, and we don't know what to do about it. And we actually have very little care about doing anything about it as well. It's all token and cosmetic, what we try and do. Sorry, end of lecture. Not a bit sorry. That was really interesting indeed, and... It has been an absolutely incredible privilege to talk with you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. I've been so long an admirer of yours. It's not true. You're the only one whose news reports made any fucking sense whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. And I admire you far more than you could ever possibly admire me. So let's leave it at that. <laughs> All right. That was Brian Cox who's currently starring in the fourth season of Succession. If you're in the United Kingdom, you can follow the latest schemes and plot twists on Sky Atlantic and Now TV. There are also links to Brian's autobiography and his new play in the episode description. I'm Jon Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. I'm now heading back to London and we'll be sharing a new episode slightly later next week. Just follow the podcast to make sure you don't miss it. And I hope to meet you back here 
very soon. Goodbye for now.